0: This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. My name is Yom Tov Glazer. I was born a small black child. Did I say a small black child? I'm sorry, a poor black child. I'm from California originally. I live in Jerusalem now with my amazing holy wife and beautiful array of children. I see, oh, oh my gosh, it's women tonight, yes. I have a lot of women in my house. I'm, I have six daughters, Thank God, uh, and, uh, and three boys, but six daughters. And, uh, and they make me very soft, my daughters. There's, um, oh, tonight there's a yurt site of a woman in the, in the group. And if I recall correctly, it was Mechel Benzev who we're going to dedicate tonight's shir, to Nishmas uh, Aliyah, uh, that is the Shema Shlava Aliyah, and the merit of the Torah, and the Hisayurist, the Chizuk, the reconfirmation, the reconnection, recommitment of uh, all of us here tonight, to Hashem and our values as Yidn, as Jews, should Nishmas Aliyah, Chol Ben Um, Anyway, just a little bit about myself before we get started. I grew up in Los Angeles. I was raised in a unique environment. Uh, I grew up in a fabulously wealthy environment. Um, I was raised in a mansion uh, that was one of the biggest properties in West Los Angeles. uh, Today it's actually inhabited by Dustin Hoffman, the actor he bought my father's house. And uh, we had two live-in servants full-time. We had a driver, uh, just, you know, the massive, you know, the tennis court, the pool, the jacuzzis, the, you know, the whole, the whole spiel. And the house was so big that I could have hundreds of people at a party with live music and keg beer. And my parents would actually still be asleep not knowing anything was even going on. Yeah. That's how big the house was. And, and we, uh, whatever, that's the way life was. But uh, m- me, myself, I was an athlete, uh, still am an athlete. I did sports, uh, mostly extreme sports. I, I grew up surfing and I surfed around the world. I surfed internationally for 12 years. And the other sport I have is uh, mountain biking. I do uh, hardcore off-road mountain biking. I've been doing them both for, uh, for about 30 years now. And uh, besides that, I play music professionally, so I brought my guitar in case you'd like to hear a little music during the evening, a little entertainment. And uh, what else can I tell you about myself? Uh, Miracles we had amazing miracles in my family because i I never wanted to go to university, and my father bribed me to go to university with uh, he gave me a toyota forerunner it's a it's a truck and uh, he also gave me un- unlimited expenses, however much I wanted to have to just all that I should go to university because he never went to university and you have parents with like funny accents, yeah. So that my father my father's father had like moved to America with this funny accent and from Europe and as far as he was concerned like and my father was concerned you got you got to make it now what making it is for them and what making it is, should be for a Jew are two different things so my father was so important to him that I got this degree and uh, but the final grand prize for getting the, de- the degree. Oh, also six kegs of beer a week. Six kegs of beer a week, which makes you very popular for about five hours. Anyway, the grand prize was an international ticket to travel and surf as long as I want. And so I could just keep going and going and going and surfing and I was already like one of the top level surfers in California and, to, and I'd surfed all around the world already but this time was to like really, really just go. And I, the miracle of the family was that my father's business went bankrupt in my last year of university and he didn't have any money to send me on my international grand prize for having graduated university and I actually got a scholarship to Aisha Torah. And I took the scholarship to Aisha Torah because I didn't have much of a choice. And I a week after graduating university I wound up at Aish in Jerusalem with Rabbi Weinberg and all the great rabbis there. And the rest is history, basically. That was it. Like I became Fruman in like an hour. The reason was because when I was 11, this little kid, I, my brother who was 16, he took me to the mountains and spent a lot of time in the mountains. And he showed me the stars and told me about the gra- great distance, the vast distance between them and how long the light takes to reach Earth from the stars and how big the universe is. And I realized as he taught me this these facts that we're really j- how small we are you ever have that feeling how small we are like we're just this whole earth that everything seems so darn important is actually just like a speck of dust flying through the cosmos and when I went to bed that night at 11 years old I looked up at my ceiling and had this thought if this earth is a speck of dust then I'm a speck of dust on a speck of dust so then what is my life for what's my life about and I was sure there'd be an answer. I was sure that all I have to do is just like walk up to different things and say like, are you my mother? You know, like I could just like walk up to a giant tractor and see if it knew the answer, you know? And I tried, I went, I thought, hey, I'm Jewish, I'll go to the local rabbi. Uh, But because it's being recorded for tourney time, I'm not gonna mention the fact that that didn't go so well. Nor am I gonna mention the denomination that I was raised in that had rabbis, that when a kid actually is asking, and when a kid's asking a question, you know, and you have an opportunity to actually bring someone close to Torah, this was like a lesson in how to blow that opportunity. (laughs) And I thought that was Judaism, so I just shut the book on Judaism and went to the next thing. I went, I was 11, fifth grade, so I went to my teachers in like public high school, That didn't go very well either. So I shut the book on my secular education right there. That was the end of my secular education. That whole university thing was like a joke. I finished my secular education at 11 years old. And so I checked out other religions, I went all around, tried a lot of different things. And in the end, I actually, since I was in university, I said, hey, why don't I pick the brains of the intellectual elite? Here I am at university, like, and there's probably all these like big professors in philosophy and stuff. Why don't I just go to the intellectual elite and see what they figured out? Because I wasn't into faith, and I didn't know Judaism wasn't a faith. I thought Judaism was a religion. I didn't realize that Judaism was actually based on like real things. So. So I went to, I went to uh, the professors of philosophy and I got very high up in it. And even though everything else was like straight C's because I only took classes that were multiple guess, mm-hmm. And, but if you're Jewish, you can get a C on a multi, any multiple guess <laughs> exam. And, but the, I have like one year where I got straight A's and that was the year I went to like the top philosophy classes to find out, you know, like, I wanted to pick their brains. Anyway, I got to the top level of philosophy. You know what I found out? At the highest level, it's called deconstructionist philosophy. Anyone get to study into this stuff? Deconstructionist philosophy. So you know what they found out? That the world's meaningless. So I walked out of there now, I'm 23 years old. I walked out of there going, going, oh wow, that's really cool. The world's meaningless. And about two days later, I'm like, oh no, the world's meaningless? Like, that's depressing. And basically, it didn't go so well. And in the end, I wound up in, I wound up in Yerushalayim. And I had 12 year backlog of questions. Meaning from 11 to 23 is 12 years of me asking questions. Questions of Christians, Muslims, questions of Buddhists, Hindu people that I'd met questions of atheists, questions of professors. 12 years of really lousy answers. And at that point I was kind of depressed and saying like, you know, and the the crazy thing was I had like 100 of these, these are natural, so I had like 100 of these coming down my back, you know, and, and I was, you know, tanned and like strong and like from this wealthy background and like, you would, you would have thought I was like, I had made it, you know, in the world or something. But to myself, to myself, I was like a, I saw myself as like an, an emaciated Cambodian with like the distended belly and the swollen skull. That's the way I see myself in California as a top level surfer from a wealthy background. Because what I deeply wanted, as a, even a, you at know, my youngest years, what I wanted more than anything else was to know why is my life meaningful? Why is this world meaningful and why is my life meaningful? That's what I wanted to know. I didn't want all the other stuff. And it's just like, have you ever tried to eat a whole bucket of ice cream? Yeah, it, it gets worse as you go, you know? So, not her ice cream, she likes it more. She was shaking her head, she's like, no. I like it. So, meaning too much of a good thing can sometimes it's disgusting, disgusting after a while. I'm, I couldn't go on with it. I really wanted meaning. Anyway, so when I arrived in Jerusalem with my, on the scholarship I got to Torah, I had 12 years of questions from 11 years old. And so I started firing my questions at the rabbis there. And the answers blew me away. It wasn't just that. It was that the answer was a half hour long. It was like this, it was like the rabbi himself had been thinking about this himself, researched it and like developed an answer, but he was doing it off the top. This was like simple to him. This was a basic. And this was for me like really important. And it wasn't just that, but my questions had babies. Meaning, I asked the question, and while I'm listening to the answer, all these other questions came up. So I was like writing down questions that my question was creating. And so after I finally asked like my 10 biggest questions, I had like 100 questions, like 50 questions. And I said, this is gonna take a really long time to get all my questions answered. And I called my parents and had them not send my surfboards to Europe, I had the round trip to Europe so I could go on my international surf tour. And I've been there ever since. I met my wife there. We, uh, we had, a, shall I tell you a story about meeting my wife? Yeah. I, you know how like Hasidic people date like really fast, you know? So it's like sh- short dating process. So I think I might have had the shortest dating process of all. I, we never dated we didn't even get to meet. Yeah, it was amazing because what happened was, uh, you know, you know I told the rabbis that I'd like to start dating around Passover time. I had been learning for three years in yeshiva and said I want to date around Passover time. I said okay we'll look for somebody. I said well don't look too hard because there's one girl I want to date first and after I date her then you can look and they're like who is it? I said she's a bahurah, she lives in Sfas. And she's she's a SEM teacher in Svast and, and I'd like to date her first. So I said, Fine. So Pesach rolled around, and I called her up to ask her out. But we got talking and talking and talking, and like three hours later, we were engaged. <laughs> so we were already engaged. I never even got to have my date with her. Yeah. It was great. And then later, after we're engaged, someone said you still have to, you have to have a date. You didn't have a date, and so I had a date with her, but I, it wasn't really a date. we were already engaged. I tried to trick her and all kinds of stuff. I I, I said so because I, I, I'm very naturalist. So I didn't want shaples and makeup and all that stuff. So I said, "So you're gonna wear makeup, right?" And and she's like, "What?" are you kidding? I'm like, well, you know, I'm in Kiru, so, like, you gotta wear makeup, you know, like, you know, you know, you gotta present yourself, like, you know, and and she's like, I'm not wearing makeup, and, and I said, but you're gonna wear a shetel, right? She's like, a shetel? I'm not gonna wear a shetel. I'm like, but you need to wear a shetel. And she's like, no, and I'm like, great, date's over, we're getting married, you know. I'm very, very natural. Everything for me is like, I'm very granola. Very granola. I like granola. Anyway, that's, that's a little bit about myself. You guys want to learn something now? What's that? Yeah, she's from Stamford, Connecticut. Yeah, she's a, ma- what? How do you know about her? I just like in Kirov, I'd seen her around and we'd been madrich and madricha before on like pro- big programs. And I noticed her. I felt like she had the what it took. Yeah, we had. just since I'm discussing it, um, the Rosh Hashiva of Esha Torah actually broke off our engagement. He broke it off. And I was a good Talmud. I said, OK, it's off. It's off. I'm not going to say why. It's not important why. But he broke it off. And I was very sad that he broke off the engagement. A few, a few weeks later, I was really sad. Um, but when I called her to Svas to break off the engagement, her answer was, Baruch Hashem. I said, what do you mean, Baruch Hashem? <laughs> I thought you wanted to marry me. Yeah. She says, I want what Hashem wants. And I thought Hashem wanted me to marry you, and now you're telling me that we're not getting married, so like that would have been a terrible mistake. So I thought I wanted to marry you, but what I really want is Hashem and what He wants. And so, Baruch Hashem that you, you know, if it's not gonna happen, then Baruch Hashem. So when she said that to me, I was like, I gotta marry this girl. <laughs> and It's like, that's the kind of girl I want, you know? So then, I uh, like a week later, I was at the hotel davening and on my way out I went to the drinking fountains and I said Shakol and I pressed the button and I started drinking and I hear a voice behind me saying how did you know it was going to work you could have said Hashem's name in vain and I turn around and there she is <laughs> I never thought about that like yeah maybe you should check the button first before remember I'm granola so I was like I'm going to conserve water you know, like she's like, at least make sure it works before you make a bracha. is more important than water, you know. So, so then I was like, I got to marry this girl. Later, she heard that I was sad, and she had a bit of a lift flare. So she used to go to the forest a lot to pray. She was staying in this forest in Yerushalayim in, Sorry, she was staying in Arnold. <laughs> Harnof next to the Jerusalem forest. I almost said she was staying in the forest next to Harnof. So she was living in a cave actually. And, and uh, do you mind if I take off this coat? Is that alright? Don't worry, I know. It's a pretty imposing podium, would you say?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Like with this whole university story, it looks like a cap and gown a little bit <laughs> for like YU. Yeah. This is what they put on your head when you finish YU. <laughs> anyway. Um, so she, she went into the forest to do her usual hisbodidus, but someone had told her that the guy you were engaged to is feeling sad, he's depressed. So she prayed for me in the forest. Anyway, it was clear we were meant to get married so we got re-engaged and, and then she flew off to the States and she called me from America and said, it, it was hard for her to be. When you live in Eretz Israel, it's very hard to be in America. And she said to me, you know, we would already picked a hall. And she says, she calls me and says, I want to get married on Eretz Israel." And I'm like, what do you mean on Eretz Israel?" And she's like, I don't want to be married at the hall. I want to be married on the land of Eretz Israel. I want to feel the earth move under my feet. You know, I want to feel the land of Israel underneath my feet when I get married. And I'm like, well, how are we going to do that? And she says, "Just go grab your mountain bike. Remember, I'm an athlete. Go grab your mountain bike, and ride your bike until you can find a good spot to get married." So I rode all over the Jerusalem forest, five-hour ride, because remember, I have to find parking. Our rebbe, the Carlina rebbe, was like really old at the time. Zatzal, the Pins Carlina rebbe, was our, you know, he was at the, you know, the final brachas, and my, the roshiva and Elderly people had to make it, and they had to have parking, yet it had to be in the forest. Anyway, after a five-hour ride, I finally found the spot, the right spot. I called her up later that night, told her about the spot. She says, that's right where I prayed for you when you were feeling down. And that's where we got married. And every year we go back there on our anniversary with all our kids. And she puts on a veil. She really puts on a veil. And she walks around me seven times in the forest, and the kids all laugh at us, and we cry and cry and cry and cry, and, cry and daven for the kids, and daven for Am Yisrael and for ourselves that we should have achdus together, and and it's great to get married on the on the earth, because because otherwise how do you go back on your anniversaries to some hall?
1: <laughs>
0: you know, excuse us. Uh, mind if we just like take over here for a few minutes for our little wedding ceremony every year anyway okay I'd like to teach uh, that's the end you like that story yeah. thank you I'd like to teach you guys something but maybe you want to tell me a topic because I've got about uh, about 180 options give us some. Ideas?
1: You want some some chassidus?
0: (laughs) Oh, do you guys get chassidish teachers?
1: uh,
0: You guys want to learn some chassidus? You want to learn chassidut? chassidut? I can teach you some really deep, scary, kabbalistic stuff. You want deep, scary, kabbalistic stuff? I don't mean those kind of like, you know, like Mashiach and everyone dies and stuff. I don't mean like that. You know, like stuff that makes you feel close to a sham. I got all kinds of things. Uh, I run seminars in personal transformation. So maybe you want on relationships, stuff like that.
1: Oh,
0: no one told me there was a topic. Oh, yeah. This class has a topic already, guys. Did you see the topic? It's called the five surfers, how we relate to fear. How would you like that? Okay. We'll start with, did you say start with that? Okay, let's start with that. I've gone all night. Just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. This lady's like, no. Okay, let's go. Shh. Five surfers. Okay, you know we're going to just do three of the five surfers because I, I, there's some important topics during the class that I think it would be, behoove us to, it's better for us to flesh those out rather than give every last surfer. And the other two are boring anyway. So the five surfers are like this. In the sport of surfing which I grew up doing the, when you get into big waves everything changes like once the waves get over 15 feet it's a whole different sport excuse me there's a lot of water moving around there's danger Um, you're much deeper out in the ocean the bigger the waves are the deeper they break out in the ocean (laughs) something goes wrong you could be in 15-foot waves you could be in certain places you could be a quarter mile out to sea so you lose your board in 15-foot breaking waves and you no longer have a flotation device. You're swimming. There's different rules now, like normally when we surf, we surf till we're absolutely exhausted. It's called spaghetti arms. It's where you can't paddle your board anymore. You're just, your arms turn into jello from all the paddling. And surfing is all paddling. You should know it's 98% paddling and 2% riding. So we go till our arms are just jello. We can't paddle anymore. I've been so exhausted that I couldn't turn the key to my car to get my car back, get in my car. You know, I just couldn't do it. Also freezing, we go in the snow and freezing weather and hail. Um, Anyway, you're you're not allowed to get exhausted when the waves are over 15 feet. You have to surf till you still have about a third to a a quarter to a third of your energy because if you lose your board then you have a bad fall. You may be swimming a half a mile, a quarter mile, a mile. You know, the waves are 20, 25 feet. You could be, that means it's breaking even further out to, into the ocean. So you could be, you lose your board then, you could be swimming a mile in giant waves. And there's no lifeguards, there's no anything there. You know, I've, I've been to such exotic places that we were dropped off by a boat on an island and the boat was only coming back in a week And there was no other way to communicate with anything. And the waves were 25 to 30 feet every day. Gigantic waves. And one bad fall and it's over. There's no hospitals there. You know, it's just our island. We had tree houses. And there were tiger tracks on the beach every morning. And this was in in Java. So in Indonesia. Anyway. Things like this, I was in a, I was in a uh, surfing spot in Mexico called called uh, Los Gaviotas. and the waves that day were about 16, 18 feet, okay, which would be like twice the height of this ceiling here, okay? And the waves were quite large, but it was fine. And what we do is we sit on our boards. You ever notice surfers, you guys don't see surfers, but we sit on our boards and we scan the horizon. Because if you see the horizon move up a little over there, that means a wave's coming over there. You just watch the horizon. Horizons usually flat. But if suddenly you lose a little horizon there, that means there's a wave going to be over there. And with 15 surfers out in the water, you want to be the guy who's over there first. So it's your wave. Anyway. What happened was we're all sitting there waiting for the next wave when all of a sudden the entire horizon disappeared. Some kind of gigantic monster waves were coming and we were already a quarter mile out into the sea. And my best friend looked at me and said, like, let's get out of here, and turns towards the shore. Now who's going to win in the race? You know, the waves or him? Meaning he's going to get crushed by these waves. So it's a rule in surfing, is if a giant wave is coming, you paddle deeper into the ocean. Because the deeper you go, you can get over the top of the wave before it breaks, right? You guys have been in the ocean. Yeah. The further out you go, the you know, the, if you get to deep enough water, the wave won't, have, won't break. Anyway, I yelled at him, turn around, your, turn yourself around and paddle out. And so we paddle out. And the, what happened was the, t- the guy who was the furthest out just made it over the top of a 25 foot wave. And the next guy made it just over the top. And the next guy had to cut through it as it was starting, to, starting the tube. And the next guy cut through it here and each one was cutting through it. But me and my friend, we were the furthest away. And just when the lip of the wave was about to smash the the surface, we both barely got our the noses of our board under the wave and punched through the, we were able to punch through the wave at the base of the wave so then, but there were more waves, so now we 're paddling, and the next guy 's going over the top, and the next guy 's going through, and now this time we punched through a little better over and over and, and over again. The first surfer is my best friend. It's the one who, when he sees the fear, he, he freezes and runs. He runs from the fear. He retreats from fear. He sees scary stuff, and she turns around and runs the other way. Running from the things we're afraid of. And how many of us have run from things we're afraid of? You know it can be, there's all kinds of circumstances, I don't want to bring them up, but in your own life you think about things that you're afraid of that you really run the other way from. And, and God put you in a situation in life that you're, that He gave you this challenge of whatever that thing is you're afraid of and running the other way from it, it's not, it's just not going to work. But that's the first one is the person who retreats. And the people who retreat get creamed by life. Life creams them, you know, just like that wave that would have crushed him had he turned the other way towards the shore. So that's what happens to people who run from their fears. The next surfer is the safe one. After a while, we ourselves were getting right over the tops of the waves into safety. And that's safe people. That with the scary things in life, they just always try to remain as safe as possible. And I understand that. I understand that a lot of us want to remain safe and we want to like hedge our bets and we want to make sure we're as safe as possible from life's dangers. But that's not life either. That's not life either. Some people are afraid to get married. Some people are afraid to have children. Some people are afraid of making a living. Some people are afraid of, of you know, what would people think if they were Froom? or... there's all kinds of things we're afraid of, but if we're always just staying safe, so we're not really alive, Hashem wants us to put it out there. He wants it, otherwise He wouldn't command us to, you know, be fruitful and multiply, to put children in the world, it's dangerous. Childbirth is dangerous, Yet, yet we're commanded to do it, you know. That commandment happens to be only on men because God doesn't command someone something that's dangerous, but you see that men aren't very good at this. So, somehow... So funny, men have the commandment and women have to, you know, like, have the baby. Anyway, the third surfer. So, just to end this analogy, when we're paddling over these waves, eventually I paddled up the top of one of these waves and I said to myself, did I come here... To surf in Mexico, just to paddle over waves? What do you say? No. So you know what I did on this last wave, and it was like one of the last waves of the set that everyone had paddled over. When it came my turn to paddle over, as I was paddling up it, I said, you know what? I'm gonna take this wave. And I sat on my board, I spun it around, and I started paddling as hard as I could to catch this gigantic wave. But the problem was I we were riding boards for 15-foot waves. The bigger the wave, the bigger the board you need. So I didn't have a board big enough to let me into the wave. The longer your board is, the faster you can paddle. So the wave will let you in. The wave wasn't letting me in, it was just getting steeper and steeper, and I was getting caught up right at the top until I was looking vertically down 25 feet. It's like a several-story building. I'm just looking down vertically because the wave wouldn't let me in. But when it gets vertical, it lets you in. And so it let me in. And at that point, I just dropped my board in front of me and I stood up like this and somehow my feet landed on it but there was no wave under me. I airdropped 25 feet because the wave had already gotten so steep that there was no more wave. I airdropped 25 feet. I landed, boom, at the bottom And I had almost no forward velocity because the whole point when you're riding down a wave, you're getting your forward velocity. And so the whole wave just lunged towards the shore. And the next thing I know, I'm inside the tube of a 25 foot wave. And I tucked down to just kind of not get hit by it. And I just got enough speed to get out. And I rode, remember at first we were a quarter mile out. At this point we were like, I don't know how, half a mile out. I rode that wave for a half a mile, like a giant roller coaster ride, all the way into the shore and I got to the sand and I just went, woohoo, at the top of my lungs. They said they could hear me all the way out there. And that's the third surfer, is the person who rides life's waves. She rides the waves of life. And everything that life brings us, that you turn around and you paddle in to that wave. But in big wave riding, you have to paddle in fully committed. Because if you hesitate, if you get those cold feet in the last minute, so it's dangerous. Life's dangerous. And we have to, when we go into life, we've got to go in fully committed. Now, there are five fears five major fears and the fears are, these fears all people have, I have them, you have them, we all have them. There are five fears and they're the fear of rejection. These are in order of popularity by the way. There's a fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of being out of control, the fear of pain and suffering, and the fear of, did I say pain and suffering? Sorry. The fear of the unknown and the fear of pain and suffering. Again, Rejection, failure, out of control, the unknown, and pain and suffering. Do you notice you have all five of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Okay. Should I say them one more time? I'll explain them. Rejection is how we come off for others. What do others think of us? Failure is my own ability to make you know to make an impact, make a difference. To my own performance. Failure doesn't have anything to do with others, just how am I going to perform. Three is the fear of being out of control. All of us have that, Hashem's in control. We're all in a situation where, you know, we all do our best, but we see that Hashem's got His own plans a lot of the time for us. We're all ultimately out of control. Number four is the fear of the unknown, right? Which of us knows the future? Who knows what will be with us? And so that's a constant fear. And then the fifth one is the fear of pain and suffering, which is, you know, obviously the pain of, like, something physically wrong, something scary, something like that. Now, those five fears are shared by all people. But what you want to be aware of is which of those five fears is the most dominant for you. Which one is the one that stops you the most?
1: The fifth, fifth.
0: this one. Yeah, you can just think about it. The fourth, unknown? Okay, you can just think about that on your own here. So for her, it's the fear of the unknown, okay? But you wanna figure out which one's dominant. You'll notice that different countries have different fears. Like for example, uh, uh, South Africans, often suffer with the fear of being out of control and it's a tiny white population it's ninety percent tribal Africans and the Jews aren't even that tiny white population Jews are a tiny population of of a kind of Dutch white population and you'll notice that the dominant fear for South Africans is out of control what do you think the dominant fear is for people from Los Angeles No not failure. Rejection. You know, in California it's all about you know how you look you know it's rejection. What do you think is the dominant fear in Manhattan? Failure. It's all about how you perform. How do you perform? Um, where else can I tell you about? I've uh, just, I've been doing this for so many years. I run seminars in personal transformation. So we talk about beating these fears. England, it's funny you bring it in, England's all five. All five fears are dominant.
1: <laughs>
0: like almost the same, you know? What? Why? Why in England, is it like that? It's a great question, not for now. It's a, like a study in human psychology of their culture, but they suffer from all five in a very big way. Yeah. Anyway, you want to know what yours is. I want you to imagine for a moment, I know it's going to sound strange as, as you know, wonderful ladies from Brooklyn. But I want you to imagine yourselves for a moment being a burglar of, of classic paintings. You steal Rembrandts and uh, Van Gogh's and, you know, the ones that are worth like millions of dollars. You only do like once a year because it's a lot of work. You never get caught. You stake out the place. You know where the mansions are that have them. Anyway, so I'd like you to imagine that you're, you're a, a burglar of Van Gogh's and stuff like that and Rembrandt's. But there's a particular mansion that you're going to hit. And this mansion, you've staked it out completely. You know the family's going to be out of town. You know where the security guards are. You know the alarm system. You know which window's open. You've got the whole thing worked out and you make your way on the big night over the wall of the mansion in the backyard, and now you're making your way across the backyard, except there's one thing you didn't know. The insurance company made them install tripwires, invisible tripwires made of like fishing line in their backyard that if they're ever to be out of town, they have to have tripwires in the backyard. So anyway, you're making your way across the lawn, you see the window that's gonna be open, and all of a sudden, what was that? And all of a sudden you hear, and two searchlights from the top of the mansion have you GPSed and put an X right on you. And you're like, what? And and then it turns out the whole yard has little calf muscle clasps that like pop up, and it just like pops up and squeezes your calf muscle. And you're like,
1: what? Ah!
0: And now you hear like security guards going, "Yep, yeah, we have her. We have her trapped. Yep, yeah, she's all set. Yep." Yeah. And dogs are coming, and you're hearing just woo.
1: Next thing
0: you know, you got like two dogs on each arm. You know, swinging off your arms. Ah! <laughs> When it comes to your dominant fear, when it comes to the one that dominates you, the, the fear that's the real one for you, you'll, you'll find yourself paralyzed. That's your tripwire, And it's invisible line. You don't see it coming. And you'll notice, do you notice how life circumstances constantly recreate it? And then there you are again, in that same situation. It's like some kind of sitcom. New situation but same same really. I maybe call it a sit-trage. Situation tragedy. Where like the situation just keeps recreating itself and there you are paralyzed again. Hit your tripwire. It was usually one of those five fears is what is what stops us. Now, in life, when fear comes up, there's two options. You either fight or you flight. You can either fight it or you can run away from it. Usually, we freeze first, right? If you guys have ever been scared, the first reaction is you freeze. And then you either get aggressive and defensive and attack or you get out. That's the way we are with those five fears. Hashem sends our circumstance, our lives to us. He sends everything that happens to us as an opportunity to conquer that fear, to get through it. That's where you are that's where you are ultimately supposed to conquer, to conquer that fear, whatever that one is. The dominant fear either owns you or you're going to own it, and that's like your, your special spot to beat it. My fear is rejection. My greatest fear is rejection, So my, and I am from LA actually, so my fear is rejection and, and that's, that's what dominates me. It's, it's also these five fears, they're in your physiology. Mine was into my digestion. So whenever I felt like I, that fear of rejection coming, my digestion would just immediately, my whole digestive system would immediately just wrench. It would turn to knots. And, and because that's where I kept my rejection. I have all five fears, so we all have all five fears. So failure, my failure that I'm not capable of making it is in my low back yeah, and that's that's where it is there. Our whole body is a feedback mechanism to, to these things and they don't come by accident. Whatever your dominant fear is, you were not born with it. It came from events, things happen, situations, and based on your life circumstances, especially when you're really little, they, that's where these developed. And our job is to recognize, you've got to know what your dominant fear is. It's important you know what your dominant fear is because that's where you have to come in fortified, not to fight and not to flight, but rather to just get real in that moment and say, what's coming up for me right now? What's coming up for me? You see, all the people who fight or flight, They don't ask the words, what's coming up for me. Have you ever heard the concept that Hashem sends you everything that comes up for you? That Hashem's always sending it to you. You guys heard that? So no matter what's happening in your life, Hashem's sending it. But what do we do instead? We want to either get rid of it or we want to run away from it. And then what happens is two days later, it's back. Because that's your thing. That's what you're here for. You're here to win this to win this thing. Whatever your dominant fear is. So it's not about fighting it and it's not about flighting. It's about asking the following question. What's coming up for me? Try those words. What's coming up for me? Let's hear it. What? What's coming up for me? That's all you have to ask. I counsel a lot of people, let's say girls are dating, and she doesn't want to go through with this particular relationship, but they're already engaged, and suddenly it's over. She says, it's over, I don't want to marry him, I say, why? And she says, whatever, this, that, and the other, and I ask her, what's coming up for you? And she's like, what do you mean what's coming up for me, the guy's a jerk. It's it's what's coming up for him, Rabbi, (laughs) not what's coming up for me. No, no, when when he interacts with you, what comes up for you? And then she pauses for a second and thinks about it, and says, hmm, you know what, I feel like a little girl. Oh, that's interesting. He makes you feel like a little girl. And she says, yeah, he does. I said, anyone else in your life ever make you feel like a little girl? And she says, yeah, actually there are a few people who made me feel like a little girl. I said, so could you say maybe this is a theme? Did you ever date anyone who made you feel like this? Yeah, I I have actually. Hmm, your father make you feel this way? Yeah, he did actually. Ah, so your father did, and now you date people who do. And now you're engaged to someone who does, and you want out because he's a jerk. Are you sure that he makes you feel like a little girl? Or perhaps there's a little girl who feels like a little girl. Meaning, can someone make you feel like you're a little, you know, little insignificant person unless you felt that way give you an example if someone called you a stick, would you get upset exactly what's a stick? so would you get upset no but if someone actually but if someone actually said to you you're an idiot or you're ugly, or you're this, that, or the other that hit exactly one of your five fears, you'd like, you'd hate that person forever. So when you ask that question, what question? When you ask that question, what's coming up for me? You get to own. You get to own it. It stops being about pointing fingers and it starts being about you and so she said you know what I can marry this guy now because he's not a jerk it's just that when he communicates that way what comes up for me is that I'm this little insignificant girl when you ask yourself what's coming up for me That's where the magic is, because what's coming up for you in almost every time, it's usually one of those five things. is coming up for you. And then you get to ask yourself, well, is that really true about me? Is it really true that I'm a buff stick? Is it really true that I'm an incapable little girl? Is it really true I'm insignificant? And the answer is no. And I can marry this person. Yes, ma'am? At what point do
1: you ask yourself?
0: Ask yourself what? What's coming up for me. The second you feel that fight or flight moment, the second you feel that resistance inside, wherever is your resistance in life, that's your breakthrough. Right when things are rubbing you the wrong way and you're angry at a teacher, or you're angry at a friend, or you're angry at your parents, or you're angry at a sibling or a child, and you're feeling that frustration inside, when you feel that resistance, there's your breakthrough. Because you'll notice, you ever have a friend who tells you about her issues? You know a good friend, she tells you about the stuff that really makes her crazy. And, and you're able to help her, you know why? Because that stuff doesn't make you crazy. But for her it does. Wherever your, resist, wherever your thing is, That's your breakthrough, right there. And by asking yourself, what's coming up for me, you get the chance to own it, instead of pointing fingers. Give you an example, my father. My father speaks about one subject and one subject alone. Money. How'd you know?
1: California.
0: Money, California. (laughs) (laughs) Eh, I don't know. It's always about money, always. Which is really not fair. Money killed my grandfather, and everyone got to meet him. He was a very wealthy guy, and he he died of nine heart attacks. Nine heart attacks. Meaning the first one didn't kill him, the second one didn't, the third one didn't kill him, the fourth. If I could have gone back in time and said, you know, at the seventh heart attack, he was already well-to-do. Grandpa, hi. We'd like to know you. You know, like bounce on your knee. You know, call you Zadie and all that. Then we want to do all that stuff with you. You don't mind? Can you just like count the rest of your money and you know count the you know move to Palm Springs or something? Because if you could just stay alive a little longer, we could know you. So it took my grandfather away, and my father himself was a serious businessman. That's where all the money came from, and and it took my father away from me. So for my father. To talk to me only about money, it's just, it's hurtful. I lost my grandfather over money. A lot of the good years I could have had with my dad. Was, he was away in some weird country manufacturing clothing. So don't talk to me about money unless you're gonna buy one of my music CDs. I still haven't played for you guys. And there's <laughs> stacks of CDs out there. You're helping pay for my trip to, I know no one buys CDs anymore. But these are great souvenirs. You can just burn it on your hard drive and then give it to someone for Hanukkah or something. If you buy a CD, that'd be great. Um, He only talked about money. So now, do you think I felt like a mature man to have my father talking to me always like, how are you going to make it? You think that makes me feel like a man? Mm -hmm. I feel nine. Nine years old when my father talks about money. How long do you think a... 33-year-old man is gonna stay on the phone with someone who makes him feel like he's nine. So can I show you what our relationship looked like for over a decade? It was something like this. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Oh, dad. Um, Yeah, it's actually terrible timing. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta go. I'm going to Minchut. I know it's 12.30. It's a minion I like to go to. (laughs) Yeah, I got to go to this minion. Yeah, they're starting Ashri. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll call you. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: For several decades like that. I even, I went to like, you know, I went to counselors, rabbis, therapists, different times, talking about my dad. There were counselors who said it's abusive what he does. You know, parents are supposed to show love, not just talk about money and how you're going to make it. (coughs) But you know, what I did was I pointed my finger at my dad and said, you know, he's not loving or he's not this or he's not the other thing. And he makes me feel like I'm nine. Right? Doesn't he make me feel like I'm nine? What do you say, ladies? he make me feel like I'm nine? No. If you haven't learned anything yet, I will repeat today's lesson. No one can make you feel anything, we let ourselves. What's coming up for me when my father calls is some crazy stupid story about me being nine. So I've orphaned myself from my father. because i have a stupid story about being 9 and so when he calls i freeze and i what do i fight or do i flight i run i hang up i don't go see him in california i move to israel 9000 miles away i reject his money world and become not only frum but hasidic <laughs> and And all of a sudden, one day, about when I was 33, 11 years ago, I realized that I orphaned myself, meaning I killed him way before he died. Because I wasn't owning it. This lesson is the lesson of Adam and Chava. When God asked them, what happened, Ayeka, what did you do? All they had to say was that You know, we ate from the fruit, you know, we blew it. He'd say, okay, get back in the garden. Instead, he's like, you know, she made me do it. She's like, the snake made me do it. Everyone's pointing fingers about everyone, aren't we? Aren't we all pointing fingers at our moms right now? Aren't we all pointing fingers at some child right now for those who are married with kids? Aren't we all pointing fingers at our spouses for those who are married? and those who are not yet married or were married, aren't we all just pointing fingers all the time instead of asking the simple question together, what's coming up for me? and looking in there and when I got that at 33 years old I called my father and I said to him, Dad are you sitting down? and he said Yeah, what happened? Are the kids okay? Everyone's okay? I said, yeah, everyone's fine, everyone's fine, but I think you should sit for this conversation. And for the next half hour, I shared with my father the last 25 years of my life that I had left him in the dark about. And I started with the words that I apologize, but I haven't shared myself with you in 25 years. And my father's like, of course you did. You shared yourself with me. I'm like, no, dad, because I saw myself as a nine-year-old little kid. And so when you'd call me and talk about money because you love me and you want to see that I'm okay, you notice the part, the parentheses, because you love me to see I'm okay. Because I didn't want him to feel guilty. He's just being my dad. He's just a dad. That's the way dad, that's what dads are for, you know? so I saw myself as nine and I would get off the phone with you as quick as you called I would be ready to hang up and so I want to share with you about what life's been like for me and at the end I said and I want you to know that I'm not a nine-year-old little boy anymore because I want to ask you ladies when I was in my 20s 25 or 30 or even 33 as a touring rabbi with Aisha when I hung up on my father each time after five seconds, tell me, was I 33 or was I nine? nine. I was nine. And when you back out of a relationship with someone that could have been something great because you got scared of rejection, are you 22 or are you maybe five who didn't get picked for some role in some school play. Are you 22 or are you five? five? There's a little kid in, in there who's still replaying reruns, sitcom reruns, Sit-Trage. It's reruns, but we love, again, pointing our fingers at the world and saying, He made me do it. The snake made me do it. He, he, she, mom, this, that. But when you point your fingers at someone, I want you to realize, where are the other three fingers pointing? Right back at you. That's called owning it. When you ask yourself, what's coming up for me? When you ask yourself, what's coming up for me? You have a chance now. You have the opportunity, it's a special moment, to own your listening. To own your listening. (coughs) How do you hear things? How do you hear the way people speak to you? It's usually filtered through those fears. But when you can own that listening, It's amazing what happens. Suddenly, your father becomes loving, your mother becomes loving. Do you know what my father said after that half hour? I couldn't stop crying the entire time. By the way, I could have gotten the whole conversation done probably in 20 minutes. It took me over a half hour because I couldn't stop crying the whole time. You know what he said to me when I finally finished and said, I'm really an amazingly capable man. And thank you for everything you've done for me over the years. And I can't wait to share the rest of my life with you, Dad. You know what he said to me? I've noticed your bank account's a little low.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I was like,
1: <sighs>
0: I was crushed. And I went and spoke to the guy who taught me how to do this. And I said, <laughs> He went right back to it. Like, it didn't work. And he's like, didn't work? He's like, you did an amazing job. And I'm like, but he didn't get it. He says, your dad isn't doing this work. You are. Your dad's your dad and your mom's your mom. All she is and all she's not, that's the mom you've got. You're going to wait around for her to change, to start getting close to her? Is she going to change? Has she changed yet? She's probably not going to. Mm-hmm. You're going to hold your breath for that? Who's got to do the changing here? The one in this room. Not your parents, sibling, child grandparent to whomever that is. I missed my grandfather. My grandfather got too old to send birthday gifts on our birthdays. I don't know my own kids' birthdays. I have a bunch of kids. I don't know all their birthdays. And this comes up once in a while when government offices in Israel are like, so uh, when's her birthday? I'm like, I don't know. I, how am I supposed to know? There's eight of them, you know. English one, Hebrew, Hebrew I can pull off maybe, but she wanted the English one. I'm like, I don't know, English birthday. He couldn't remember our birthdays. When my grandfather for the first time forgot my birthday, he was out, he was out. Do you get how a little kid would say, he's out? He doesn't love me, so he's now out. You know, he went on to live like 15 more years He taught my brothers fishing, they would go up north to be with him. I refused to go and no one understood why. Every time my parents said, like, it's your turn to go up to go fishing with grandpa on the river, I'd say, no, no, I don't want to, I'm going surfing. What's coming up for me? You know, I was terribly embarrassed on a basketball court when I was a child. I missed, I had to shoot free throws in my first game and I missed. The backboard and the, I missed everything. <laughs> Both times. And the whole place laughed, and I just ran. I was like running home from this park, like kind of hoping a car would like pull out of a driveway and kill me from the embarrassment. And you notice, what do I do? What's my sport? Surfing. Yeah, is there anyone in the audience? No. no. What's my other sport? Hi. Mountain bike. Anyone else around? No one there to laugh. What's coming up for me when someone says, hey, you want to play basketball with us? <laughs> Not today. Yeah, no. No, thank you. Come on, Rabbi, just little hoops. No, thank you. What's coming up for you? And when you can own it, it's amazing. I want to tell you that my father, three years later, he did warm up a little and say the following. He says, you know, three years ago, you once were like crying terribly on the phone. And you were telling me all these things of which I didn't understand. But that's one of the best days of my life. And I said, why? He said, because ever since then you've shared your life with me. And I really appreciate it. He did get it. He didn't get it, but he got it. What he got was me. And that's what I call unorphaning. Orphaning is when we kill someone way before they died to make ourselves somehow safer. Because mom's dangerous for me. I feel unsafe with her. I don't feel big, I don't feel strong, I don't feel like a woman. So I knock her out, or I knock him out, or that siblings out, or whatever, to feel safer. What I like to call unorphaning is when I ask myself what's coming up for me and I own it. I own that this is something in me. And when I own it, I get them back. They don't change, but boy, is it different. I get them back. Make sure all of you when you go to wherever you go tonight after this session, make sure you say the words that count to the people you've pushed out of your life. I know you haven't pushed them out entirely probably but in your heart deep down you think about it there's certain people you don't let in anymore. And I bet you it's because it's touching one of those five fears because of some other stupid thing from when you were little. Life is too short for us to be living in some kind of weird loop, some strange loop we're caught up in for not getting picked for a play or something. Life's too short for us to be retreating from the most important relationships of our lives because of a story we're living, some weird loop we're stuck in, when we can just simply say, what's coming up for me, and own it, and really own it, and say, you know what? This person isn't abusive. This person is just simply touching stuff inside of me that scares me. I feel unsafe there. But when I recognize that I'm not a little nine-year-old, and I'm really just this amazing human being that each one of you is, suddenly I can have room in myself for that person. When I ask myself what's coming up for me, and I'm able to pinpoint it and own it, suddenly there's room for my mom and my dad and my siblings my children and my grandparents you know that conversation I had with my dad where I cried and cried I did the same thing with my deceased grandfather the person who was helping me do this kind of work said write him a letter even though he had passed away write him a letter own that you stopped being in a relationship with him for his last 15 years till it was too late just write him a letter. But I didn't have to, you know what happened? I was shopping in a market in Tel Aviv and there was a man picking out apples who looked just like my grandfather. He was an older man, he had that Ben-Gurion hair that kind of starts here. And and just like my grandfather. And, and I said to him, listen, sir, in Hebrew, I was like, would you mind just standing there and letting me, can you just be my grandfather? he to be my grandfather for like two minutes. I'll get it done in like two minutes. I was already getting good, you know, no half hours anymore. <laughs> just like two minutes. And I told him everything, you know. And he was just so nice, this old man, he was just listening, he thought it was very beautiful. He started, he was crying, <laughs> I was crying. And in the end he says, I love you, grandson. And he held, <laughs> And there we were, like, in the produce section, (laughs) just crying together as he held me. So I think it's probably time for me to break out the guitar. You may cry when we go into this song. Oh, maybe I'll take a few questions first. And they can be also really random. I don't mind random questions because some people say,
1: don't you miss surfing?
0: I still surf. Oh. Are those Pais natural? Yes. <laughs> Why did you become Hasidic? I was bored. No, 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 no. Okay, so you can ask anything you want, all right? Yes.
1: Uh, what's coming up for me? What, really, like, what exactly does it mean? These words.
0: Those words? Yeah. What I was saying is, what, what of the five fears is getting hit right now? Uh-huh. Meaning, let's say those are the s- five cor- strings on a ukulele. I don't know what, what instrument has five strings, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but which, cor- which string's getting hit right now? Which one's buzzing away that's scaring me uh-huh. and making me feel small, or making me feel nervous, or?
1: Thank you.
0: Shh. Uh, let's hear the questions, nice lady. Yeah,
1: um, you know, what you said definitely gets a chord with me, but there are some people that you have to be related to who can be quote-unquote toxic, even to this day where even if you say what's coming up for me, the person is still saying and doing things that are very, like, insulting or not nice. And I even had a Rob say, you have to stay away from that person. They're toxic. So, so how do you then, then, you know,
0: Right? Some people are objectively toxic to the point where a rub could say like, you know, stay away from that guy. So, check it out, man. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. I, I just suddenly wound up being Cuban. <laughs> and I said, check it out, man. So, listen. Ch- check this out. You ready? First of all, there is such a thing, obviously, of objectively abusive people. There is such a thing, and there, you need geographic distance and keep your kids away from them and everything, you know. And it's uncomfortable as it may be and sometimes it's parents or grandparents. You have to make rules and because of their behavior, they've lost their privilege for normalcy. They're going to need chaperone, whatever it may be. Um, But you ready for this? Let me just put it like this. I don't know if you ladies know, I run seminars in personal growth called... Have you ever heard of it, called the possible you? Yeah. Raise your hand if you heard of it. Raise your hand if you have friends who've done it. Yeah? Raise your hands if they were particularly transformed by the experience. Yeah? Same hands. <laughs> Listen, I run personal transformation experiences. Uh, the next one's in Jerusalem, December 23rd. And, the, uh, and you should know, by the way, the work I'm doing is cheaper with your flight. I mean, it's cheaper to do my seminar with your flight than to do similar work here in New York that's like some like $3,000 or something to do this work. It's super powerful work. And tonight I was just sharing with you some of the ideas. But we had a, this, I'm gonna tell you two quickies, ready? We had a girl who had an abusive sister and every time she would go back to her house in Beit Shemesh from Jerusalem, her sister would rail into her for the whole Shabbos. Horribly toxic girl. And she was also told to like only go home like once every six weeks from her school unlike the other girls who would go home like twice a month. After our seminar she went back there and the sister went in to launch into her again and just like she couldn't. We are satellite dishes. I want you to see yourselves, this is going to be a strange visual. But I'd like to see yourself as having a satellite dish over your head. You know how a satellite dish is, the big white dish? And it's got a little thing in the middle? That's your head. Okay? That's your head. Listen carefully. We are satellite dishes for certain ways that people relate to us. You'll notice abused people, people who have suffered like, terrible abuse, they often have it repetitively weirdly Mm -hmm. have you ever noticed that you'll wind up in a new environment maybe a camp or a new school or a new job and yet within day or two everyone's relating to as if they've always known you how do they do that how do they know you already the answer is is because you're wearing this giant satellite dish but you don't see it you can't see your own dish you're just like walking around oh i'm at a new camp now things will be different Yet three days later, the thing morphs right back into the camp you used to go to. Or your job just morphs right back in, like with your a whole new boss, yet the relationship just morphed right back into the same nightmare. The reason is because is we're wearing a satellite dish and there's stuff written all over it like kick me. <laughs> and when you pop off that disc and you're just like... You pop off that disc and you flip it over and look at it and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, no wonder these are my results in life. Because this is what's written all over my disc. Which have to do with those five themes. And you take that disc and you just go like. And now you take a clean, fresh disc and pop it on your head. And then go to Shabbos in Beit Shemesh. The sister couldn't say it. it, nothing could come out of her mouth. She was ready to, she was habitual at abusing her sister verbally. She couldn't say it. And the second story I'll tell quickly, and then I'll take your question and then we'll do a song. One time in one of my women's seminars, I don't know how this happened, you notice groups always have themes to them. So this group had three women out of 30 women, Three of the, sorry, four women out of 30 women had abandoned their f- abusive families 10 years previously. Some of them, 12 years, 13 years, but meaning they had been completely and totally cut off, out of touch. Pasakhalaha halacha from Ravs. To be out of touch with their families, the least was 10 years already out of touch. The seminar is six days. Okay, straight. A week later, we get back together again. When we get back together everyone goes around the circle and shares their successes of the week all four of them you ready for this all four of them had been contacted by their family members for the first time in over 10 years 12 years 15 years depending how long all four their families had no idea of the work they were doing I am discussing stuff that is beyond It is beyond scientific explanation. But when you own the stuff, when you own it, when you ask those words, but really do it in a guided way, like the way I do in my seminar, what's coming up for me? Things happen that are way beyond the explainable. All four of them have been contacted lovingly they had gotten emails, they had gotten text messages. Their families wanted to even days earlier, but it took them days to research them to find out that they were even had moved to Israel. And then to find their cell phone number to send a text or an email. They had all been had, and they all had more than one communication from more than one person out there. It's a magical thing, we're living lives, our lives are reflections of us. This satellite dish doesn't just receive, it's putting out wave patterns that people are somehow relating to. So you're either getting gorgeous stuff coming towards you or you're getting all kinds of crazy stuff coming towards you. But in the end, when you're pointing those fingers at this world, where are the other three pointing? right back at you. And when you own that and you learn that lesson from Adam and Chava, your life becomes magical. And this is guaranteed. I will sign my name on the principles I've taught you tonight because I've seen them work over and over and over and over again. And I suggest when you get a chance for, to come to Israel, go online to thepossibleyou.org. It's called The Possible Go online to and see if it's, you can schedule your trip to get in there. Because it is, it is a fundamental shift that happens inside of you. When you put six days, not just tonight's hour, but six days, four hours a night, with my staff of women, who are like unbelievable transformed human beings, one of who was abused so badly as a child that the doctor said when they she obviously had been transported to the hospital several times in her, as an infant the doctor said she'll never make it to one years old in this family They'd said they said she wouldn't make it to one she's now in her 50s single because she could never be in a relationship now she can as a result of her work but not only that But the one thing she dreaded, more than anything else, was every few years she has to be in her parents' presence, for like if it's a funeral or it's something going on, she had every few years. And she, after my seminar, she went back and she got her parents back. And they were actually able to love her for the first time. Good question. They're natural.
1: What's the website?
0: Thepossiblyyou.org. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by torahanytime.com.